Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, and welcome to this episode number five of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Howard Vincent. He is the president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And if you're not familiar with them, they are a conservation organization that in my mind uh, represents a really classic example of the good that the hunting community does to promote a healthy ecosystem. Their tagline is the Habitat Organization, and that is where they put all of their energy is in improving and protecting and conserving the habitat that these birds, pheasants and quail, but also a a whole host of other types of wildlife thrive in. They've got 150 wildlife biologists that work with them across the country, and they've got nearly 150,000 members that are in, I think, over 700 chapters across the country. So if you're curious about them, um, you can probably find a chapter somewhere near you. And if you look at the results of what they've done, they've had impact on more than, I believe, 16 million acres across the country. Uh, and those are those are lands that have benefited from the work that they have done to really promote healthy habitat for for wild animals and and clean water. The thing that I'm really passionate about with them, though, is getting more people out into wild places to hunt and and do other outdoor activities. And I'm really excited because we're going to be partnering together on some special projects here in 2019. And we'll talk more about that later, but um, I'm just really impressed. Every time I talk with Howard, uh, I find out something new about this organization, and I think you're going to enjoy the conversation today. Just a last reminder that today's episode is being brought to you by our film, Awaken the Hunter Within. If you have not seen it yet on our website, please do check it out, and we will put links to the film in the show notes page. Make sure you check it out and you can follow Becca, Pierce, and Alex on their journey into the world of hunting. These are three people, three adults who had never done any hunting before and we chronicle their journey into the world of hunting and everything that goes along with it. And I think you'll find it's a a really interesting story. So we'll provide a link to that. Just make sure you go to the show notes page and that is at modcarn.com forward slash podcast five. That's podcast in the number five. Okay, today we are joined by Howard Vincent, who is the president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you? Doing very well. Glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me. You bet. So um, we're obviously going to talk a little bit about the organization you run, why it's important. But I'd like to just start with a little bit of background, first of all, on, on you uh, as a person, where did you where did you grow up? What's your what's your background? Well, originally I grew up in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Okay, um, great born, town, one of my favorite towns. It is, it is. Uh, born and raised there. Uh, went to college there. Um, kind of introduced to hunting there with my family, and you know I come from a, a big family. I'm the last of eleven kids, and um, you know hunting was yeah I wouldn't say a big part of our uh, family culture, but it was, you know, it was there. Uh, we did trapping and snaring, you know, rabbits and, uh, a lot of, uh, grouse hunting, uh, and there, uh, in Duluth, if you're from that area, you don't grouse hunt, you partridge hunt. <laughs> right. <laughs> Same species, but for whatever reason, it was partridge hunting. Right, then. right. And was upland, was partridge hunting the main thing if you did hunt or did you hunt waterfall? Did you hunt deer? Yeah, uh, mostly uh, mostly grouse. And so, you know, we'd occasionally, you know, try to jump some ducks, uh, but you know, Duluth isn't in that great flyway, but you know, you're an opportunity hunter. So if there was, you know, flights coming through, you'd try to get out on the St. Louis river or some of the lakes, uh, North of Duluth there. And, uh, you know, I had friends that, uh, that was, a kind of a, a weekend culture in the fall that, you know, three, four of us would always try to get out for, you know, a Saturday and a Sunday out there during high school. And, uh, it was a, it was a great time. It was, uh, you know, we had the, you know, North of Duluth, you have the, you know, all the way to the boundary waters 
you know, to hunt. And yeah. it was open access to, to everywhere. You know, you would know at no time would you have to knock on someone's door. You have the Superior National Forest, you know, at your feet. So that was spectacular. And, you know, growing up, my parents, uh, one of the great weeks, you know, of my life, uh, every year, you know, starting when I got my hunter safety program, I, you know, when I was 11 or 12, uh, would be to, we'd spend a week out in the woods and we were a poor family. So we didn't own a tent. We didn't even own a car, but the older brothers would drop, you know, my father and my mother and myself, just the three of us out in the woods. And we would camp out there and we, we did a, we had a lean to, I mean, a piece of tarpaulin and, yeah. you know, a, a fry pan and a pot and you know food for the week and brothers would drop us off on a you know Saturday morning and come back you know seven eight days later the following Sunday and pick us up and you know for a 12 year old to have you know the freedom to go hunt and I they get to hunt by myself my you know dad would go one way maybe with my mom and I'd Mm -hmm. get to go another and you know maybe maybe you come back for lunch and maybe you know for sure you're back for dinner but you know, to sit out there and plink and have a chance to shoot some rabbits and some squirrels and grouse, you know, if you were lucky enough and recognize, you know, we never had a hunting dog. Yeah. So, you know, it's terrible to say, you know, especially in my current position, but we shot grouse there in what was called pre-flight position. Yeah. So <laughs> if you saw a grouse, you took the grouse. You took it. <laughs> well, and there are areas up there that the woods are so thick. If you don't, if you don't take it at that time, there's exactly. no chance. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What's your? Uh, do you do you go up there much anymore? Or? I still do. Uh, we we have a tradition where we still like to go up. My two sons, uh, who are now 31 and 29, uh, we try to get out, uh, and it may be you know over the Thanksgiving weekend we'll try to get out for a couple of days. Uh, or, you know, we actually, uh, typically we'll carve out a week somewhere in the hunting season where just the three of us will get out. Uh, and that, and that could be on pheasants or quail or somewhere else in the, in the country here, yeah. but just the three of us. And, you know, for me, you know, probably one of the greatest myths is that I, I get to hunt a lot because of my position and that's, you know, and that's, uh, I, if I get out three, four times in a year, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but I, when I get to go, it's obviously usually really spectacular opportunities. And we're with, um, usually we call it being on because we'll bring state DNR directors, people out of Washington, D.C. Uh, we'll hunt together, talk about our issues and how we can be better partners, um, how we can deliver more conservation. Um, so when it is just, my boys and myself that's magic for me that's you know we go places where no one knows who i am or what i do yeah and that's magic that's great one of my hardest one of my most difficult grouse hunts ever was up in finland and uh (laughs) i have been there and done that (laughs) we hiked miles and miles and miles through some of some deep swamps, some perfect country that looked like it, it should hold it should hold birds, and I think we got two birds over three days. It was tough. It was a real tough one. In a, you know, in a in our probably my best grouse season ever growing up. You know, if I shot ten grouse that year, yeah, that was a great year, right? I mean, if you got one or two right. a day, that was spectacular. And, uh, you know, now, you know, if, you know, you, you know, I know I have friends and, uh, acquaintances who, you know, have really good hunting dogs and know those magic spots, the difference mm-hmm. between, a you know, a, a swamp and a humpback that you want to stay out of, <laughs> you know, and then you hunt the, uh, you know, uh, some of the young forest that's been refurbished and put a good dog on the ground and, yeah. you know, they'll shoot their limit every single day, right, right, you know, right. that's that's grouse hunting right now. So you mentioned uh, the St. Louis River, which uh, I just went out on on that body of water last year for the first time and got to learn about all the conservation work being done there. Just an amazing success story. It really is. It really yeah, is. Yeah. So growing up in Duluth, recognizing, you know, the, the paper mill, you know, up in Cloquet was, you know, dumping in. And this, you know, we, boy, we got to go back to like 19... 
late 60s and 70s and then you know somebody made a really good decision which was to put in the western lake superior sanitary district which took all of that runoff and all of those uh, uh, pollutants uh, clean them up in the system and the I know originally they thought that the river would take 20 years, 30 years to kind of regenerate. And in reality, it took like five years. Mm. It just turned over that fast. It became an incredible fishery um, and is really a a great story to tell. Yeah, it it really is. So do you fish? A little bit. bit. I like it. I'm not very good at it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know what you mean. I know what you mean on that front. Um, Well, good. So... The uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever organization, um, the the vision statement is uh, to ensure current and future generations of hunters and conservationists are able to enjoy abundant populations of wild pheasant, quail, and other wildlife, which is a, a very all-encompassing statement. You're oftentimes called the Habitat Organization. So I guess I wanted to ask, how do you define habitat, and uh, what is the magic formula to ensure there's a, a future of a healthy habitat for, for not only these, these wild animals, but all of us? Yeah, so the, you know, the term for us, you know, as we think about habitat, you know, is really simply, you know, maybe that perfect acre of land that has uh, nesting cover, uh, brood rearing cover. Uh, it would have, you know, cool or warm season grasses and forbs, right? Wildflowers uh, that could sustain, you know, a nesting uh, uh, pheasants and quail because you realize that when uh, those pheasants, uh, baby chicks are hatched and they come off, they're only eating protein for the first 20 days mm-hmm. roughly. And the same thing with quail, you know, they're not picking seeds. So they need that abundant wild uh flowers to produce bugs Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's that perfect acre Mm -hmm. right and so we measure our success by acres so this past year we delivered 1.7 million acres of that habitat and then you know if you look at that mission statement and it does say pheasants quail and and other wildlife so we've absolutely recognize that the work we do in that acre or those hundred acres or those 1.7 million acres of the benefits to other wildlife and Mm -hmm. and not only wildlife but to you know how we protect our soils how we protect our water Mm -hmm. uh, and that it's not just pheasants and quail but it's deer turkey and it's pollinators and it's monarchs and, you know, at Pheasant Forever, Quail Forever, we have some other large initiatives. The uh, sage-grouse initiative, out 11 state region out west. Uh, we've got uh, the Lesser Prairie Chicken Initiative, which is a five-state region in uh, the southwest. And so, again, if, the, you know, we raise dollars locally through the chapters, we try to match those with our federal state partners, and we can create these habitat uh acres uh regardless of where they are in the united states and with the quail forever brand obviously you know from the southeast florida georgia all the way out to california and washington and you're looking at valley quail and california quail and the desert quail species as long as those dollars go on the ground to improve that wildlife habitat there that's the magic of it you know we don't release any birds uh, of any type you know the dollars go on the ground and I, I've heard you say that before, the dollars go on the ground, which I love, I love that phrase. And it's so true just in terms of, of where all the effort is going. Um, and, and I think a lot of times people don't realize the, the benefits to the whole ecosystem, to all of the other species, like you said. Even though you've got um, these two particular species in your name, the, the work you do is so beneficial far beyond that. Uh, to all these, to all these other living living creatures in the environment, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know the magic of the organization and the energy that has come here uh, relates a lot to our volunteers and our membership base. And you know, make no mistake, you know, our hundred and forty thousand members are avid hunters, and they identify with being a pheasant hunter or being a quail hunter. But they also absolutely recognize that you know if they're going to 
uh, have land to hunt, if they're going to have access to that land, and if they're going to have a successful hunt, that they have to put something back in the ground yeah. uh, themselves. That uh, it doesn't happen magically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does take hard work, and you know that's the I think the really the magic of the organization in our you know short thirty five years. Uh, I think we've delivered over 17 million acres, you know, of habitat on the ground, um, you know, and then, you know, what else do we do? What else should we be doing? And, you know, that enters into this next generation of hunters that we want to come and be the next conservationist, you know, on that landscape. So let's let's talk about that um, next generation of hunters. Um, how important are mentors two new hunters and what does pheasants forever and quail forever um do around in in that space yeah that's critically important you know if you think about uh the the you know myself uh you know i could you know sure call my father my mentor um so it comes in different forms it could be your father your grandfather family friends but you absolutely uh need that social network you know, to be introduced to hunting, uh, to find your way, you know, not even just learning, but uh, again, to have access to, you know, have those, all those components of uh, knowledge on how to hunt and whether that's pheasants or deer hunting or waterfall hunting, there's a, there's an art to it. Uh, there's challenges, there's, uh, you know, safety concerns of all this, and that all comes with a mentor and they can come in different shapes. It could be your, uh, that, and that first child's uh, hunter safety director uh, program uh, director and again it could be family or it could be someone who's does want to pass on their knowledge and passion for the outdoors uh, to others uh, and we're in this moment right now where we you know are not only concerned about getting you know young children outside uh, to learn about hunting and shooting the outdoor sports uh, but we've got to actually even bring the old dogs back, uh, people who have kind of maybe left the field for whatever reason. Uh, we need to engage them and bring them back into the hunting community where, you know, over the last five years, we've uh, dropped uh, 2 million hunters, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we're at just over 11 million participants right now. Um, and if we only focused on those 12-year-olds, uh, they're the cost to wildlife and conservation uh, would be dramatic and we could lose this sport. We could lose this North American model of hunting. Uh, And so um, there was a council forum, the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports. Uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are uh, one of those members along with Ducks Unlimited and the National Turkey Federation, Archery Trade Association, National Shooting Sports, and there's uh, State uh, Department of Natural Resources who are members of this. And we've uh, developed what's called R3, which is recruitment, retention, and reactivation. So we have to uh, bring individuals of all ages into this sport and back to this sport uh, and including, uh, you know, the 60, 70 year old guys who have maybe put their guns away. We want them to come back out and be those mentors and introduce others to the outdoors. And, you know, we do see, uh, you know, we really believe we can turn this around. Uh, we believe we can build this, uh, hunting community again. Um, you know, in Minnesota at this moment, uh, the shooting sports are just exploding in the high schools and scholastic clays. I mean, there's, I think they had 12,000, uh, kids participate in the shooting sports, and it's the number one lettered high school sport in Minnesota, bigger than football and hockey. I know, bigger than hockey in the state of hockey, which to me, when I heard that stat recently, I, I was amazed. And it's and it's growing. It's yeah. uh, and and this has just happened probably and really honestly the last five to eight years. Yeah. It's gone to that, and we see that happening in other states. And um, we do want our chapters supporting those initiatives. Uh, putting dollars toward those and you know from an organizational standpoint our mission isn't for kids to uh, shoot trap and skeet Mm -hmm. but we absolutely believe that that path if we can get them outdoor pulling the trigger that there will be a natural extension and a path forward for them to maybe be interested in hunting and then 
continuing that path to be a conservationist, to be a, a leader in hopefully our organizations. And, you know, they're the next group who's going to deliver those acres. You know, it, one of the things I, I talk about a lot of times with getting new people into hunting is, is if you're outdoors already, um, you're paddling, you're camping, you're hiking, you're birding, et cetera, um, you're, you're observing wildlife. When you start to hunt, you become a participant in that, in that ecosystem. And it's, and it's hard to describe that, I think, to somebody who hasn't done it. But I love hearing the stories and watching the reactions of people once they get it and they become part of it and they realize the richness of that experience. And I think the, the aspect, like you said, with these, these trap leagues, these high school trap leagues, you've got this skill now where you're shooting at the clays take it now to that richer experience of going out and being in these beautiful places and being part of that ecosystem and, and a participant in it. And, uh, you get a great meal out of it too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's almost uh, a Leopold quote and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to even say that, uh, <laughs> I'm not, the way, I'm but not you know, the, the, you know, the, the intent of, you know, you in order to love something, right, you have to essentially immerse yourself in it. You have to mm-hmm. smell it and touch it and feel it yeah. in order to appreciate it. And, you know, if you think about that landscape that's out there, um, it's not just to look at. Mm-hmm. It, it exactly. is to experience. You know, we can stay in the library if we want to look at yeah. pictures of the Rocky Mountains or, or look at that stream or look mm-hmm. at that beautiful pictures of the lake if you want to have an experience you got to get on that water um you got to get the line wet you have to you know recognize the tug on that line right that little bit of Mm -hmm. adrenaline that hits you that's magic yeah and the same thing with a flushing uh upland bird whether it's a grouse or a pheasant or a quail uh it's magic and you can be in awe of you know, this bird that you just harvested and, and recognize the beauty of it and then appreciate, um, you know, this this meal that you're having and recognize that you are a part of that cycle and that it is sustainable and that it is such a natural part and you'll want to go back. I, I think there's an argument, a, a, a credible argument, whether it's right or wrong, I, I don't know, but that the future of conservation and protecting wild places is is dependent upon a robust hunting community i think it 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 just the appreciation you get for the outdoors and the desire to protect these 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 places that where the animals live and grow and thrive is is so core to the hunting community um, that's, that's one of the things I, I'm passionate about because I, I feel like there's so many things in society these days that are insulating us from that connection. And that is dangerous, I think, because then the, the uh, valuation of those places, I think, diminishes the more insulated and, and, and distant we get from it. And when you go out and you hunt, you are part of it, and you understand the importance of all those aspects of the clean water, of the brooding areas, of of all of these different things. Absolutely, and so you, you know, you're back to Leopold saying, you know, if if you think groceries come from the store, and if you think water comes out of your tap, and if you think heat comes out of your furnace, and don't recognize where those things really came from then you cannot have an appreciation for that. So you do need to immerse yourself. You do need to be in that that space where those things are created and uh, and, and utilized. It's, uh, you know, uh, the, and then, you know, to the heart of the North American model of hunting, the hunting community and the shooting community fund 80% of conservation in the United States through self-imposed license fees, through the excise taxes that they pay on only uh, guns, bullets, shells, arrows, and bows. Um, those are the only things that generate this, these millions of dollars of excise tax that go back to the states to deliver conservation at the Department of Natural Resources level. Um, and then with, uh, you know, hopefully those NGOs out there that are helping match those dollars. So that's where those, that's the money for conservation comes. And if that stops, 
um, we are going to be a loss for uh, a, a hunting heritage that we would never get back. Yeah. So why do you think hunters are such staunch conservationists? Going back to you just referencing the excise tax, Pittman Robertson in the 30s, Dingle Johnson with fishing community in the 50s, um, you know, all, all of these things that were sometimes proactively done, I guess, excise tax to, to address these issues, but it was because of the problems that had resulted from market hunting and things like that. Yes. Um, but wh- why do you think it is, it is so, so core to the, to the DNA, <clears throat> excuse me, to the DNA of, of a hunter more so than, than maybe some other groups? So I think, I think it is your, your back if you're in that environment, if you're in the woods, if you're on that lake, if you're on that stream, you're a part of the cycle. You recognize there is a cycle of birth and death, and you're a part of that, and that it can go away without your help. I mean, we have, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of screwed up, you know, the planet pretty well, and now, you know, we're into management. Uh, we can't l- just leave it alone and walk away and assume everything's going to be fine. Uh, there needs to be management. Uh, and we, I think the hunters recognize their role in that cycle, uh, as well as, you know, salmon recognize their cycle in order to get upstream and spawn and and then die. And they'd be a part of that uh, biosystem you know, as they break down and become food for other, you know, other fish and other resources. So it's, it's natural. I think you live it, you, you breathe it and you understand that. And it, it may not be really obvious and conscious part of you, but I, but I think it exists and uh, I think it's real. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So you, you talk about where we're at in the, if we look at the long range of, of us as a species, it, we're at this point of where we've populated this planet so much, we got to manage it. It's not separate anymore. Um, and, and I think we've done a lot of good things within the U.S., you talk about the North American model of conservation, we talk about the self-imposed taxes, the 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 bills like the farm bill which comes up which which pheasants forever and quail forever is is an integral part of making sure that includes conservation in it um what are what are the challenges we have today in this current environment with making sure we are managing it well and 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 we are focused on the right things so that we don't as you said, screwed up some more. So I think, you know, one of the greatest challenges, especially for the, specifically for the hunting community, is that the work that conservationists do need to be recognized as relevant to the broader population. So if you think about that, the, the work that, you know, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever would do or, or, or Ducks Unlimited or Turkeys or any of the other wildlife organizations uh, for example, if we're putting habitat on the ground and we're keeping soil where it should be, we're actually building healthier soils and we're keeping, you know, that moisture on that field, uh, we're preventing uh, chemicals from running off into streams. And so at the end of the day, we're protecting water, right? If those buffer systems are in place, natural buffer systems, we're protecting that runoff. That means as much to someone in downtown Minneapolis or St. Paul or St. Louis or Chicago as it does to the people in those outlying communities of rural America. Um, Protecting water is relevant, and this conservation community does that every single day. Uh, Those 1.7 million acres that we put in are protecting water, and they are keeping our soils, and they are uh, allowing places for pollinators to exist and, you know, something as uh, simple as a monarch butterfly. And I think, you know, every third grader has gone through that classroom where, you know, we opened up, a, you know, a, a pod and mm-hmm. took out that little larva and, you know, watched that metamorphose into a butterfly and then recognize of what's, you know, what does that butterfly need? And it is relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you live in downtown Minneapolis, you should care that there's enough milkweed out there because that's the only place that 
uh, monarch butterflies uh, feed and where they nest and where they lay their eggs. And uh, if that goes away, you will not have monarch butterflies. Right. And that's relevant. And you don't have to hunt to appreciate that. But you should recognize the people that are, are putting their resources and time and energy and dollars into the ground mm-hmm. do, do recognize that. And you should appreciate that. Do enough people, um, our elected officials in Washington, I'm sure you're out there quite often, um, have an appreciation for what the hunting community does relative to conservation? Because that's one of the things I get concerned about is there just, there isn't enough connection to, to understanding what that, that whole hunting conservation ethic is all about. Um, not enough. Yeah. Not enough. And so, you know, as as America has transitioned from a rural agricultural uh, country, you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s into an urban culture right now. Uh, so if you just look at how your House of Representatives are assigned, right, mm-hmm. it's based on population mm-hmm. bases and the tighter population and more concentrated you know, in an in a urban center of Minneapolis or St. Paul or, again, Chicago, have typically, I mean, I'm making a huge generalization, I'm making a generalization, not a huge generalization. Um, you know, they have a constituency that they represent that does not include or typically concern wildlife conservation, um, and, and I'll say water mm-hmm. and soil, mm-hmm. and, and, where, and necessarily where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it takes to grow that food. Those farmers out on that landscape who are protecting our lands, who are feeding a nation, who are clothing a nation, mm-hmm. uh, fueling a nation in some levels, um, you know, what's what's critically important there, and that's not their issue. Um, and if you look at the farm bill itself, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge um, concentration of all of the issues, including downtown uh, uh, urban cities, which is welfare, mm-hmm. uh, food uh, right. for school lunches, and that's by far the largest part of that bill. The conservation title is a very small amount of dollars relative to um, the entire farm bill. So you need those votes, and so it's a little bit magic because you want those votes of those urban representatives to carry those conservation title uh, for rural America as well. Now, I would argue that there's uh, some incredibly smart and passionate people in Washington, D.C. who recognize absolutely what this takes to feed a country, what uh, what it means to have uh, uh, an economic viable agricultural community, which is critically important, and then as well as, but we need to be smart about what we grow and how we grow it. Mm-hmm. Um, so and they exist and and we've been successful uh, over the you know last three decades that we've had a farm bill uh, but it's a battle it's a battle every single day uh, there's not enough money to do all the things that all the representatives in Congress uh, and the Senate want to do uh, on this landscape so we're out there fighting every single day uh, to, to for for our battle and what we believe in so I know Relative to the farm bill, as you described and we were talking about earlier, it's such a broad. Everybody thinks, oh, it's just about farmers. No, no, no. It's it's a very broad bill. Um, And so maybe if you could talk a little bit about CRP and just explain for the listeners who may or may not know what that component in the farm bill is and and why it's important. Sure. So there's uh, the farm bill is uh, title two of that bill. Uh, is the uh, conservation title. And the, con- the the biggest piece of that conservation title, or at least meaningful to us, is the Conservation Reserve Program. And that program is designed to uh, pay farmers a rental rate for ground that is uh, probably never should have been farmed to begin with um, because it's maybe highly erodible, it's poor soil types, and you know the the benefit that the american people would receive for that farmer taking it let's say out of corn production and putting a grass cover on there with forbs uh that would again prevent soil from washing away uh keep chemicals from washing into water 
um, give us wildlife benefits of uh, forage for honeybees and monarchs and pheasants, quail, deer. Uh, and there's a, a cap they put on that every farm bill. And the farm bill happens essentially every five years. And so this past farm bill, the 2014 farm bill, uh, put in play a 24 million acre cap on acres that were eligible to go into the program. And the program is fairly, uh, there's, you know, like 50 different practices uh, that you could qualify for, uh, but you have to bid into it. The uh, farmer. The farmer has to yeah. bid into it, yes. Okay. And uh, then the Department of uh, uh, Agriculture and its uh, divisions, which is Farm Service Agency and Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, to the most part, uh, look at those programs and either accept or reject those bids. Uh, and then they're typically either, you know, 10, 15 or 30 year contracts. And so there's a huge benefit to the public. And again, I don't think the broad public recognizes the benefits and really the pricelessness of uh, what they're receiving for those dollars. So in the 2014 farm bill, it was capped at 24 million acres. Um, what was the cap 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, I think our high was 39.6 million. So, you know, we're in this budget war, you know, every single, and then the iteration after the 39 million was 36 million, you know, 32, and then down to 24. And the 24 happened in a, you know, all the stars, I would say it's kind of lined up against uh, the conservation title in that corn, you know, in that window of time, went from uh, maybe a historical $2 a bushel, ran up to $8. And there was no motivation for a, a landowner who's trying to feed their family and send their kids to college mm -hmm. to, you know, leave it in a conservation reserve program that would maybe be paying them, let's say, $150 an acre when they could get $8 a bushel. They were making, you know, $300 an acre. Um, but we also sent the signal that said, plow everything. Yeah. yeah. Everything. And so that everybody, you know, <clears throat> can sort of get a visual of what this is. That would be a farmer then having these either fringe areas along fence lines, ditches, um, uh, marginal lands that have, like you said, they've got a grade there where it's going to erode and or it's just not ideal farming. They would just let that go to grass and natural and sometimes planted, uh, planting the those beneficial grasses, getting the forbs in, et cetera. And so when prices go up, there's a cap. Farmer can't get access to the program. They put in a bid. They don't win it because for any number of different reasons, they're going to plow that under, and they're going to have corn or soybean, generally speaking, yes. from fence line to fence line and out in the ditches and everywhere they can, right? Because, like you said, they're trying to, trying to you know, send the kid to college. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, and so our challenge uh, at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is to kind of find that balance. Uh, you know, our goal would be, uh, or our belief, strong belief, would be that there's room for conservation on every farm. And at the end of the day, you know, farm the best you know, and then let's buffer the rest. Let's uh, let's make use of the best use of our, our lands, our flat black soils, uh, and then the stuff that, you know, isn't as uh, viable, you know, let's protect that and let's build soils there. And, and, and you know, these decisions aren't forever. Um, these are voluntary programs. And, uh, you know, we believe farmers can find that space in those spots for wildlife, uh, for pollinators, for monarchs, uh, protect water, you know, and that's obviously an issue too. You shouldn't be farming right up to the edge of that creek, no more than you should be farming up to that white line in the middle of the road. Um, there's, you know, good farmland and, and, and we just need to give those landowners the right tools to do that and the economic viability to do that. They shouldn't do it at their own cost mm -hmm. uh, or at their own loss. Um, and they sh uh, all of us should recognize the benefits uh, when they put CRP. And yes, they're compensated, but they're compensated, you know, at least theoretically at a local rental rate. That's fair and equitable for um, both the public and the right. landowner themselves. 
Was your organization supportive of the Minnesota governor uh, buffer law that's put in place? And 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 um, it's obviously you know highly charged in some respects the implementation of it, and there have been challenges around it. But um, is that something the organization supports? Yeah, we believe the concept of buffers on waterways. Um, you know, the governor's uh, you know was a far-reaching bill. Uh, there wasn't uh, we had little or no input into that, uh, how it was implemented and put in play. Um, but again, if you look at, you know, the goal of our organization would be to, you know, work with those landowners, find uh, economic uh, resources for them uh, to make, have it make sense for them. But we do, we do believe that there should be buffers on every waterway to protect that. And, and sometimes it's, it's not even as simple as, you know, this cookie cutter approach of a, you know, the buffer is the answer to every single right. one of those edges. I mean, you can create berms, you can create other mechanisms uh, to have the same feature uh, or the same impact. Um, so uh, I would probably have a uh, maybe a less of a cookie cutter approach that everything looks the same uh, and evaluate each, uh, you know, what you're trying to protect and what you're trying to create uh, to be, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, thought thoughtful on how we do that. And again, um, you know, finding economic resources, uh, those, that CRP program, uh, that uh, that has a buffer mechanism in it. And we uh, we were able to kind of work with the Natural Resource Conservation Service and Farm Service Agency to encourage them because originally, as soon as they made that law in Minnesota, it technically didn't qualify under hmm. the Department of Agriculture program anymore because it's law. Okay. So it wasn't voluntary okay. anymore. Okay. We were able to work with them, encourage them, and uh, through uh, their attorneys, they were able to draft wording that said no farmers can qualify for buffers and get paid through these federal programs, uh, which was, I think, fair and equitable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, how, does a, uh, how does a person get into pheasant hunting or quail hunting, and, um, and uh, do, they, do they have to have a dog? Ideally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, there are some some basic tools, and you know, I think that you know that first best tool is a mentor. You know, on how uh, you know the how you would go about hunting. You know, you you need to be you know understand uh, the safety of you know shooting shotguns, and you need to be um, you know you should be shooting some clays, and mm -hmm. you know getting comfortable with uh, with that device and. And then just the, you know, the logic of how we're going to actually go into the field and hunt and uh, hopefully, you know, number one, flush a pheasant who whose nature is not to fly, which means you need to, you know, typically put a dog on the ground, uh, move that bird. And then, you know, the obviously the different breeds, you know, do you want to, are you more comfortable hunting with a flusher, which, you know, the, and then. Uh, and or a pointer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, then uh, be ready and then you know one of the more difficult things is you know once you know if you're lucky enough to shoot that bird you know and it drops in those grassy fields to find that bird and retrieve it and yeah. that dog you know is magic again and and honestly uh, you know the if you think about the classic pheasant hunter it is all about the dog yeah the hunt is 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 magic uh, but most of the individuals that I know would not hunt in any way if it wasn't for their dog. Yeah. I mean, that's such a natural companion. They're bred to do this. They, the joy that they, they uh, show mm -hmm. uh, when they're in, in the field, you know, is contagious. There is, it is so fun to watch a good dog work. And so frustrating. You're right. Dog, yes. Dog yes. That and there, work well. so, um, <laughs> but it is. It's amazing. Yeah. So that's one of the more common questions I get is, you know, what's yeah. your favorite dog? Someone else's. <laughs> that's, exactly. I don't have a dog right now. So it's exactly. It's it's nice to go out with somebody who's, who's got a good dog. That's right. Somebody, well. And it's it's time and energy. Yeah. And, you know, the, and again, the best dogs um, are also the best family dogs. Yes. And, 
you know, the, that dog's a field maybe three, four months at best in the year. And the rest of the time, it's a, it's one of the members of your family and the joy that, you know, dogs can bring, mm -hmm. uh, to, to everyone, whether you're, you're a hunter or not is, is magic. So what's your, uh, what's your favorite, uh, gun for upland hunting? So I've, I've learned here, I'm getting, getting smarter. Um, I would say originally I was, I wanted that 12 gauge and I wanted every single pellet and every single ounce of powder. Um, and it had to do with my mentality. I'm not a very good shot, so I need all the help yeah. I can get. Sling as and, much out there as you can. And of late, <laughs> um, I've had people, uh, knowledgeable people, let's be clear, um, move me toward uh, smaller gauges. And to my surprise, I'm a, a more effective with a 20 gauge than a, than a 12. So I, I uh, two uh, on upland birds. Let's, on, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Two years ago, I sold my tw a twelve gauge that I had just for hunting upland, and I and I sold it to buy a twenty. And I've never had a twenty. I've always had twelves, and I love this gun. I I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't figured it out. So I'm not. I my I've I've got to work on on my accuracy. But I haven't quite got there. But I love how it carries. I yes. love how it feels. Um, and it doesn't kick me like a mule like that last the 12 gauge did. <laughs> and it's, um, it, you know, for myself and I, and, and again, um, people who are knowledgeable, um, much more knowledgeable than I am about the ballistics, uh, would even argue that. And, and I've shot at least quail uh, with a 28 gauge and had more success with the 28 than I did with the 12 as well. It swings better. It's much quicker. Um, the ballistics, uh, my understanding on the 28 are, are almost a perfect, is, is that really that perfect gauge now? And I have shot pheasants with the 28, uh, with a pointer. Okay. Birds are in a little bit closer, yeah, right. right? You're not right. going to take those 50 yard shots, yeah. you know, that you can sometimes get away with a, with a lucky shot on a 12 gauge or something like that with a, you know, a uh, good load, but um, the 28 is kind of a magic gun, and so I haven't gone from the 20 to the 28 absolutely yet. But yeah. you know, in my perfect world, I would I would love to stay there. My very first gun, my very first shotgun, was a single shot Stevens 28 gauge with a, with, with a hammer, no safety or anything. Just this old gun. I still have it, and. Uh, and uh, I've 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 often thought the same thing. I'd like to someday again go go back to twenty. It would be would be fun. And I've heard or I've heard like you said. I don't know ballistics at all. I'm not knowledgeable in that space. But I've heard it's that it is a a much more perfect uh, yes. gauge for whatever reason. Yes. Know, with, the with, and, and same thing. The, the the people that have you know shared that with me, you know, know that world. You know, live in that space. Uh, and 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 even you know, and I've seen this. Um, even on the trap and skeet range, uh, these individuals can grind up with a 28, what I'm, you know, can't do 60% of the time with a 12. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's proof statements there. And then there's the simple eye hand coordination that, you know, I don't necessarily have with the rest of the world. I, I won't even say what I shot a few weeks ago when I went out to a range with a couple of friends. It was so embarrassing with that gun. <laughs> well, then, and then the reality of that is, you know, that's like uh, playing golf. I mean, you go out yes. there and you start, you have to think now. You have to think about where your what your lead are, what your lead is. Um, how am I, gonna, am I swinging? Am I keeping it mounted? Mm -hmm. And when you're hunting wild birds, it's more instinctual. Yeah, that it yeah. comes up naturally. You're not thinking, and that's why you're more effective with flushing birds than you would ever be, I think, on a trap or a skeet range. Yeah, yeah. So, do you? Uh, if somebody asks you, do you have a, a, a hunting story that's a favorite of yours? You know, when you were a kid, maybe when your 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 boys were younger or something. It could be a funny one. Could be a. Um... So my actually my single favorite hunting story um, would would the first time I ever took my two boys hunting, and so we are back home in Duluth, Minnesota for Thanksgiving, and. The boys are six and four, and we just had a beautiful snow, 
and I'm going to take them hunting for the first time and, and recognize hunting means they, you know, one gets to carry a single shot 410 empty. One gets to carry a pellet gun empty <laughs> and I'm just following along. Yeah. And we're going grouse hunting in my old haunts, but we had a beautiful foot of fresh snow. It's gorgeous. And taking a six and a four-year-old out into the woods is like bringing a brass band. I mean, <laughs> wildlife is leaving for miles and miles ahead of us. But we, you know, it's this experience and we're, you know, we see rabbit tracks and deer tracks and, and the boys get to, you know, shoot the 410 and blow up cattails, which is really spectacular, right? right? right they just yeah. explode. And, and then you just got to be smart enough to be upwind, not downwind of those. But, uh, Anyway, we're having a wonderful day, and we're walking on paths. I'm trying to take it easy on these little legs, and they're, you know, they're in their their best snow gear. So it's, you know, they, it's a classic. If they fall over, you know, they got to be helped up. And um, but they stop at some point, and they say, you know, when are we going to start hunting? And I said, well, <laughs> we kind of are. And they said, no, we got to go in the woods. And it's like okay. So I figured out a, in my mind this path that kind of forked. And like we could cut across this edge of woods, not too far. And cause I'm, I'm actually breaking trail for them, make it a little bit easier for them to go in. And uh, we get into kind of the middle of this clearing and they notice there's this deer stand and uh, it's, it's got a little bunch of little pines created around it for camouflage. And of course, little boys and heights. So right away, both boys said, you know, can we go up in the deer stand? It's sure, you know, so they both climb up there. This is, this is my best hunting story, we realize. So the six-year-old says, I have to go to the bathroom. I need to go pee. And I said, well, why don't you come down? He goes, no, I want to go from up here. <laughs> so it's okay, right? I mean, what, right. what right? do you say? Absolutely. Yeah. You got to so make sure they have the blood four-year-old, he needs to go uh, now too, right? Oh, of course. So this is happening and I'm telling you, it looks like the Chicago fire. The back pressure on a four-year-old and a six-year-old is spectacular. And anyway, so we finish the day. We stop and we have lunch somewhere and a burger and fries at an old haunt. Again, I don't buy him a beer, but, you know, I could have. Uh, and we just had this wonderful day and we get back home. And so they had plinked with a 22. They had plinked with a 410, the pellet gun. And uh, they saw all kinds of tracks, deer tracks, rabbit tracks. And we get home to Grandma and Grandpa's house where we're staying, and Mom's there. And so tell me about the hunt. You know, boys, what did you you see? We peed off the top of a deer stand. And really, you know, no, tell me about your hunting. Yeah, there's this deer. And that's all they could. They... (laughs) They not, I said, guys, tell them about, you know, we plinked with, uh, you know, the 410 and you yeah, blew up yeah. cattails. Mom, this deer stand was way off the ground. And we, <laughs> so the kind of moral of the story was they had the best time and they wanted to go back. Yeah. And yeah. for me, that was my single, you know, greatest achievement for them is, was to plant this seed of being in the outdoors and having a wonderful time. And they wanted to go back yeah. and everything has taken its own course from them. Uh, they've never peed off the top of any other deer stand that I'm aware of. And they've continued to they enjoy hunting. Hunt. Yes. I was just out with my son this last weekend. We were fishing and, uh, we were walleye fishing up North. And, um, you know, at one point my son just wanted to drive the boat and similarly, like you said, and I've learned that over time, you know, okay, if I want him to like fishing, I better let him just drive the boat now. And he had a great time. And he, he said the other day, dad, we got to get up back out fishing soon. You know, to him fishing was, you know, we, we did fish a fair amount too, but the driving the boat was a fun aspect of it. And, and you need to just take those opportunities and let them have fun. We all find our joy in different elements of the outdoors. Right. And right. that was as good as any. Right, right. So what excites you most about the future of hunting uh, and, and, and what's going on today? Because there, there are a lot of challenges in conservation. There's challenges with recruitment, like you talked about. Um, but what are the bright spots that give you hope for, for the future of, of hunting? So, you know, organ, you know, I'll look within the organization that bring, you know, gives me so much joy. Um, so we've grown uh, from 
you know, for the first 25 years of the organization, we were about 50, 60 individuals uh, employed here, did great things. Chapters delivered 100% of the acres in the organization, you know, because of our model. Chapters raise money locally. They keep money locally. They delivered the mission for the first 25 years. And they they were delivering about two to 300,000 acres annually. Spectacular. And then, you know, the strategic questions that you know, presented us was, is that who we're going to be? We became fairly static with our chapter growth and what chapters could generate, what they could put in the ground. And we, um, one of the concepts came up was this farm bill biologist concept where we would hire uh, an individual, they would, uh, and with partners, (laughs) that's critical here, um, recognize that we can't do this ourselves, that it takes uh, lots of partners to do great things. And we can help partners deliver their mission while delivering ours. Um, so working with Natural Resource Conservation Service, Farm Service Agency, Department of Natural Resources, um, we could hire a position, farm bill biologist, that would sit down at the kitchen table with farmers and ranchers and help them build a conservation plan wherever they could on their farm, right? And these are working lands. These are working farms. They're growing corn and soybean, but they, f- they could find places to do conservation, so that was about 12 years ago. We have 380 people in our organization right now. 70% of them are millennials, and they're, they're our farm bill biologists. So these are young, uh, talented people, and I don't care what you think about millennials, but my take is there's hope for the planet. Uh, these are just incredibly passionate, young individuals who you know, at least came to this organization and, and, and work in this community um, and have a passion for what they're doing in the outdoors and conservation. And, um, you know, they're not here for a big, you know, if you're working in the nonprofit, you're not here for the check. Yeah. Uh, but they bring so much energy that is, um, that gets me excited. I've, you know, I'm just working on my 30th year here with this organization. And I'm as excited now as I've ever been. Um, the number of partners uh, that we're working with every single day is incredible. Um, we're working better um, every single day with our other partners, our ducks and turkeys and elk, uh, through the American Wildlife Conservation Partners. We work very closely in Washington, D.C. on legislative matters. We're partnering and we're matching our dollars uh, together, working on programs, whether it's in the Prairie Pothole region with the North American Wildlands Conservation Act, um, there's just so many ways that we're working together. The R3 initiative, we're all in along with all those other organizations. All 50 Department of Natural Resources at the state level are in. We've got uh, the Department of Interior and the Department of Agriculture recognizing the importance of R3 as well. So this is this is coming together. We're, we're getting smarter that, uh, again, we can't work by ourselves. We have to work together if we're going to really make change. Uh, and it's really happening on the landscape right now. Uh, I, I agree. I think it is an exciting time, and in part due to the challenges, but a lot of good things happening. I, I, th- I couldn't agree more. The, the partnerships and everybody working together in the same direction is, is critical. So to that end, if somebody is interested in Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, they're, 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 they're not a member today, but they want to learn more, I guess, where is the organization today? Where would somebody be able to find a local chapter? So the best thing to do is to actually go to our website, so pheasantsforever.org or www.pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. And you can go out there and you can, a map will pop up of the United States and you can drill down into the state and the counties. Uh, So our Pheasants Forever chapters are county-based. Um, and then for those that aren't, you know, uh, and you can go to a local chapter banquet if you'd like. And there's 750 of those around the countries, both on the pheasant and quail side. Uh, but you can also, you know, if banquets aren't your thing, you can sure go online and join. Uh, and then, you know, participate. Uh, you know, go out to our social media sites. Uh, you know, share, you know, if you want to learn how to hunt, if you want to find a mentor. Uh, if you want to talk about your dogs or what dogs are out there, if you want to get into this, uh, what are the guns? 
uh, what type of shotguns are your preferences? You know, there's an incredible amount of experience out there. Uh, what loads to shoot? I mean, there's some endless, uh, what are the best recipes, you know, for your wild game out there? There's a just an incredible amount of resources out there for you. Uh, and you can sure join online as well. Well, you you and your organization do a lot of phenomenal work, and I want to thank you for that, for conservation, and uh, and I want to thank you for taking time today to sit down and, and, and share a lot of those stories with me. So Thank you, Mark, for thinking about us and allowing us to come out here and talk a little bit. It's been fun. Absolutely. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Howard Vincent, the president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Don't forget to check out the show notes page where you can get more information on this episode as well as a link to our film Awaken the Hunter Within where you can follow Becca, Pierce, and Alex on their journey into the world of hunting where they had no background in this world and we follow their entire journey from asking questions to going to a gun range and learning how to shoot to getting out and doing small game finally a white-tailed deer hunt, and then sharing in the feast after. And so uh, go to the show notes page at modcarn.com forward slash podcast five. That's podcast and the number five. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.